Our reading for today is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. You will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for this for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our lord and Je- uh, savior jesus christ the word of the lord good morning uh, welcome we are now on the uh, last in our series of sermons um, that i've been preaching on the fruit of the Spirit. So we've gone through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and today we're going to finish with self-control. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for uh, our time together, um, to gather in this place, and as we uh, consider now, as we finish up uh, this series on the fruit of the Spirit, um, help us to continue to abide in you that we may bear fruit, and that we may enjoy the fruit of the Spirit together uh, in community. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so today's topic, uh, today's fruit is self-control. I have to say that I've always felt a little uneasy about this one as one of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, It's not that I have anything against self-control, and for the record, I want to say I am all for Self-control. But self-control seems counter to what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. I've been saying from the very beginning that the fruit of the Spirit is something that the Spirit produces, not something we produce, and that the fruit is for the community. But self-control sounds like it's something I do for my own benefit. right? That's how we ordinarily think about self-control. It's something I do for my self-improvement. How is that a fruit of the Spirit? Um, Let me read you something um, I wrote last week uh, in a journal that I'm keeping uh, for my kids to read someday. And uh, this is what I wrote. I wrote, It is hard to maintain discipline in all areas of life. 
while one part of my life might be temporarily under control, another isn't. Today, I went to the gym, but I also ate a donut for breakfast. And last night, your mother and I ate potato chips while watching TV, even though she is struggling with acid reflux and I am supposedly still trying to lose weight. Sad. Lord have mercy. I've noticed that I've been writing Lord have mercy a lot more frequently in my journal uh, these days. But this is the sort of thing that we think about when we talk about self-control. We can identify areas in our lives that we want to exercise more self-control. Eating, drinking, binge-watching, shopping till dropping, screen-staring and swiping, procrastinating, losing your temper, being habitually late, failing to keep promises, smoking, being in debt, sexual lust, pornography, saying no, saying yes, annoying habits like biting nails, inconsistency in maintaining spiritual habits of prayer and Bible study, irregularly or never exercising, and on and on and on, just all kinds of things that we wish in our lives we had more self-discipline, more self-control. And so we joined a newest trending gym. We start a new fad diet. We make promises and New Year's resolutions to ourselves, to our spouses, to try harder to improve our lives. Is that it? Is that what Paul's talking about when he says this is the fruit of the Spirit? Try harder to improve your life. Well, the King James Version of the Bible translates self-control as temperance, uh, meaning self-restraint. Uh, today, you know, we associate temperance really just with, um, with alcohol um, and as abstinence. So modern translators prefer self-control over temperance. Other translators use continence, um, which is a word that we don't normally use, um, other than maybe incontinence medically, which actually is not a bad illustration of losing self-control. Um, I've had some experience with it myself recently, so I know what that, what that is. Um, but the Greek word for uh, self-control is actually not very interesting. Um, it's a word that simply means uh, to have power over or to be in, uh, yeah, to have power over. So basically it just means self-control. Uh, it's a straightforward uh, root, meaning force, power, uh, the root is kratos, from which we get words like um, democracy, power of the people, uh, bureaucrat, um, power over bureaus, I don't know. Um, so it, it's, it's about um, power that is uh, under control. Uh, someone pointed out in FG that it's very similar in this way to gentleness, right? Because last week I said gentleness is about having power under control. And so self-control is, is similar in, in that regard. But what's really interesting about self-control, not the word itself, but that the idea of self-control was so important to the Greeks and to the, to the uh, time that Paul is uh, and the other New Testament writers are writing. Um, Socrates, for example, considered self-control the foundational virtue upon which every other virtue was to be built upon. Uh, Xenophon, one of his followers, said similarly, shall not every man hold self-control to be the foundation of all virtues and first lay this foundation firmly in his soul for who without this can learn any good or practice it worthily, right? They they felt that you had to have self-control if you're going to have any other 
virtue. Um, it makes sense, right? You have to bring your desires and appetites under control. Because they recognize it, and we know this too, how easy it is to become enslaved or to be distracted by uncontrolled passions and appetites and the suffering, not just some you know, uh, inconvenience, but the suffering that such lack of self-control can cause on yourself and on your community. So self-denial, self-discipline, self-control often heads a list of virtues, not only for the Greeks, but in most wisdom literature throughout the world including uh, this country. Ben Franklin, for example, in his autobiography, tells about 13 virtues that he wants to develop, beginning with temperance or self-control. He wrote, eat not to dullness and drink not to elevation. Moderation, self-control. Like the Greeks, he begins with temperance because he knows that unless he's able to have that, he can't build the other virtues on top of it. Uh, Some of you older ones may remember uh, in the early 1990s, uh, William Bennett came out with a book uh, called The The Book of Virtues, uh, a treasury of great moral stories. Uh, It was very popular for a while. Uh, And in its first chapter was also this idea of self-discipline, self-control. That's what he also started, this treasury of great moral stories, that you have to begin with self-control. This week... uh, I ran across a book by James Spiegel, a Christian writer, who the title of his book is this, How to Be Good in a World Gone Bad, Living a Life of Christian Virtue. And his first chapter is also Taming the Beast Within, The Virtue of Self-Control. So it's, it's a very common understanding of starting with self-control as a foundational virtue. We admire people who have a lot of self-control, right? Uh, Though we probably secretly hate them uh, for not eating that second piece of cake like the rest of us. We rightly applaud athletes and musicians and scholars who have sacrificed and trained and denied themselves all kinds of pleasures to achieve a level of success and competence because all of us who have tried to be good at anything, right, we know how hard it is to get to a level of competence, let alone excellence in anything. We know how hard it is. But as much as we might prize self-control as a virtue and as a foundational virtue, uh, the biblical writers do not. Because there's at least a couple of problems with this. First, the Greeks realized that self-control, or the idea of self-control, contains within it an immediate paradox or contradiction. Plato wrote, isn't the phrase self-mastery, self-control, absurd? I mean, anyone who is his own master is also his own slave, of course, and vice versa, since it's the same person who is a subject in all these expressions. In other words, when we say self-control, who is the self doing the controlling, and what is the subject that is being controlled? Aren't they the same self? If I'm controlling, I mean, unless you're schizophrenic, right, it's, it's all the same person who's doing the controlling and being controlled. I and myself, you know, it's the same person. So what does it mean when we say, I'm controlling myself? Well, the way the Greeks made sense of this was to argue that the self that is doing the controlling is the, the reason or the rational part of the human being. And that the part that has to be controlled 
are the appetites, the flesh, the desires, and so on. So they took a, they kind of divided the self as the, the rational, the good part, the, the higher part, that has to control then the lower uh, part of the self, the physical and the flesh and so on. Um, so that's how they understood uh, self-control. Um, of course, the problem with this now then becomes um, even if we are to assume that the, the rational self is the better part and that the rational part ought to have control over the lower parts, uh, how do we, even if we assume that, how do we, how do we know that the rational self is actually rational? How do you know that? So who then controls the rational self? And I think this is a, you know, a real concern because we imagine ourselves to be rational people. We think we make decisions based on good information and facts, when in reality, we do not. Studies have now shown that we actually make decisions based on emotions and irrational beliefs, and then later come up with rational justification for those decisions, and we fool our minds into thinking, actually, that the process was reversed. In fact, as you get older and build up a particular worldview, you tend to reject whatever doesn't fit into that worldview, regardless of facts and regardless of how strong the evidence against it is. Isn't that a little scary? I mean, yes, we ought to have convictions, but sometimes convictions are just an excuse for irrationally held stubbornness. I'm sure you've all experienced the frustration of trying to convince someone of a wrong belief. Have you ever tried to convince someone that a dishwasher is not a drying rack, but actually washes dishes? I've over the years made what I thought were very persuasive and winsome arguments on a variety of subjects, only to be dismissed for no particular reason. I've even had people tell me what you say makes sense. I agree with you, but I still don't believe it and I won't change my mind or my behavior. Psychologists have a name for this. It's called the backfire effect. Research shows now that when a strong but erroneous belief is challenged, people experience some temporary weakening of those convictions, but most people rebound and not only reassert their original beliefs, but they actually dig in deeper and reaffirm more strongly those erroneous beliefs. This explains in part why it's so easy to dismiss that you disagree with as fake news, even if it's reported by world-class journalists. So at this point, if you think you are rational and have self-control, you can take a nap now because everything I say will not be able to convince you otherwise. But that leads to, I think, a second and actually a bigger problem with self-control. And that is, it is so hard to have self-control. It is so hard to have power over yourself to have the self-control. As much as I want to do what Nike says I can do to just do it, I just can't do it. Right? We all agree it's good to have self-control. We all know that we should want to have more self-control We especially want people around us to have more self-control. You know, I don't know, like come to worship on time and not fall asleep during sermons. I don't know. 
But we know from experience that we often lose this battle. We live in a world of addictions, and we are fully capable of addictive, self-destructive behaviors that mock our efforts at self-control despite our best intentions. Whether it be overeating a pint of ice cream flavor that I didn't really like last night, but that's all we had in the freezer, or watching one more episode of that really not-so-must-see K-drama, or overspending for the holidays on gifts that you are obligated to buy, or the inability to put your phone down because of your irrational FOMO. We regularly find ourselves losing control in addictive behaviors that jeopardize our health, our well-being, the well-being of the community, and the shalom, the peace of the entire community. We have no power. The Apostle Paul, uh, Peter, for example, you know, he boldly declared that he would stand with Jesus even if it meant his life, even if the other disciples abandoned Jesus. And yet, three times he denied even knowing Jesus when he faced the smallest of threats against him. He meant to do it. He wanted to do it. He was sincere, but he failed when the moment came. Knowing what was right, knowing what he wanted to do, was not enough. The Apostle Paul acknowledged how hard this is. He wrote in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He goes on to say, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I mean, isn't that what we all, right? Younger folks, right? You're thinking, Paul, I feel you, right? If you're older, you know, if if Paul's going to, like, if Paul is struggling with this, then of course I'm going to struggle with this idea of self-control. Now, as I said, what's really interesting about this is that as central as this idea of self-control is to the Greek culture and to most uh, cultures, the New Test- and the New Testament writers, they're very aware of this, of course, and they're very aware of the, uh, the problems that the lack of self-control uh, can cause in a person's life and the life of the community, but they say very little about self-control. The word itself only appears a handful of times in the New Testament. You know, we would expect it to appear repeatedly but it doesn't. And the reasons for this is really because Christians have a radical reordering of the self. The self and self-control is not at the center of who we are. That is not how we begin. That is not how we understand what it means to be a virtuous person. You know, I know that our current culture of self-gratification with its preoccupation with the self and selfies It fits in well with this sense of self-control, right? You want to have more control over your life so that you can pursue your personal fulfillment, so that you can have a better life, so that you can be the best that you can be, the best version of yourself here and now. And in this line of thinking, even faith becomes just another method of self-improvement, picking up a little morality to have a little community to make my life a little more meaningful. But self-control as personal and selfish self-improvement is not a Christian virtue. It is not a Christian idea. That is not how we understand ourselves. Self-control, self-improvement, 
Self-happiness are not the center. They are not our first concern. The fruit of self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, is for the community. It's for the community. So in this sense, I think the word you know, temperance or continence might be better because despite their you know, current associations, we take the word self out of it. And given the concerns of the New Testament writers, it's unlikely that Paul and Peter and the others thought of self-control merely as control of the self by the self and for the self, as did the Greeks. In the context of the fruit of the Spirit, it has to be the self under the control of the Holy Spirit. Self-control is saying to God, yes, your will be done. And at the very least, we can see that self-control is not the foundation Paul, in his list of the fruit of the Spirit, lists it last. Not necessarily because it's the least important, but at least that it falls under the foundational fruit of love. Which brings me to our reading today. Second Peter begins by reminding the church of the work of God, that salvation is a gift, that everything that is needed for a moral, virtuous, godly life is rooted in the knowledge of Christ that is available to them. It is through Christ's power, the power that Christ shares with God, a power that is made available to us fully in the Holy Spirit, that we have everything we need to live the godly life, right? So the problem of power has been solved by Jesus Christ. So we can have the power to exercise self-control. And then beginning with verse 5, because of what God has already done and already has given us this power, this is then how we are to respond. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort, right? have self-control, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Then in verse 10, be diligent or be eager. We are to respond with every effort and diligence and self-control To grow in godliness with the power that has been given to us. And then in verse 11, he writes, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Now, it's not clear in the English here, but I love the way Peter has framed. This is one of my favorite frames in the New Testament. In verse 5, the word supplement, and in verse 11, the word provide, it's the same Greek word. And it's, it's one of my favorite words, and it's the word for chorus in English, or choreography. Right? It comes from the idea that in, the, in, in those days, patrons would often um, equip and, and supply the needs of a municipal orchestra or choir. And so that's how this word is being used, right? That make every effort to supplement or to provide for your faith with virtue. And then verse 11, for in this way, God will provide for you an entrance into the kingdom. So you see, another way of thinking about this is this. Make every effort to choreograph your life. Or I want to even go to sing your life with faith and virtue. And in this way, God will richly choreograph or sing for you an entrance into the kingdom of God. You see, it begins with God. That's very clear. There's no question about that. That's the gospel. It's a gift. And we respond to that gift by making every effort, 
by choreographing our faith upward in what's sometimes called a ladder of virtue from faith to virtue to knowledge to self-control to steadfastness to godliness to brotherly affection and finally to love. We make every effort we make every effort that's part of our self-control and we do it because we've been given the power and this is how we respond. And then in verse 11 God then God will provide for us, will choreograph for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom. I mean, I, I just love this picture because it, 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 I have this picture of entering the kingdom in, the, in this choreographed dance uh, into the kingdom. Always there is this balance of God's grace and human responsibility. We are saved by grace and grace alone. We are saved by faith and faith alone. But we are also saved for good works. We are to make every effort. If we don't make every effort, it's to cheapen grace that leads us to laziness and immorality. To ignore grace, then, is to elevate works righteousness that leads to pride and despair. So we have to make every effort to grow in righteousness, to exercise self-control. We must strive with diligence toward our sanctification. And this will help us to confirm our call and election, that is, what God has already done for us in Christ Jesus. Someone said that we make every effort because of our new position. We practice hard toward godliness because we are on the team, not so that we can get on the team. Because we are saved, not in order to be saved. We cannot take a passive approach to sanctification as if knowing a few facts about Jesus or a few doctrines in our minds is enough. It's not. It's not. Imagine a football coach. Imagine in the beginning of the summer, he starts practice and comes into the locker room. He starts diagramming plays and tells his players to memorize them. He then tells them stories about past games, about great victories, and about the great players and and the Hall of Fame members from the past. He then tells them about the history of football and goes on to tell about the architecture of the football stadium. They do this all summer long. The players study hard. They have understood everything he has said. They have a greater appreciation for the history of football. The fall comes and the team takes the field to play their first game. What's going to happen? They're going to get destroyed. (laughs) They're going to get absolutely pummeled. Why? They learned a lot. They know all the facts. But they didn't exercise. They didn't run drills and lift weights and actually, you know, play the game. The Christian faith cannot just be about knowing the Greek word meanings of the fruit of the Spirit, as interesting as that might be. It's the working out of our faith in response. It's making every effort Toward godliness. It's committing ourselves to grow together in our sanctification, to strive with eagerness toward holiness, to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. And we do this because everything necessary for life and godliness has been given to us in Jesus Christ. 
How many of us can honestly say that we are making every effort toward God and toward our sanctification? If not, why not? You know, Paul talks about it in the letter to the Corinthians how, you know, these athletes train so hard to, to receive the prize. You know, not just the participation trophy, but, you know, to win the gold medal, how hard they work. And shouldn't we have the same attitude toward our faith? Why, why don't we do that? Why don't we have that kind of zeal? Now, again, not because we're trying to be acceptable, but because we have been accepted and because we've been given power. And I also want to point out that you know, making every effort doesn't mean that you go all out all the time until you burn out. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, translates self-control as being able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. I really like that. Self-control means being able to direct your energies in a way that is wise. It takes wisdom to know where to direct your energies. It's about creating the right boundaries in your life so that you can have the bandwidth to do your life, to do ministry. Um, I was reading about um, Mother Teresa the other day uh, in some of my um, studies. And you know, it's impossible not to be impressed with her life. I mean, she worked with the poorest of the poor in India, and she worked incredibly hard. And, you know, even for a saint, it's really, really hard work. And she realized that when you do that, you can't go all out all the time. There's no way. And so she developed a schedule for her workers that those who are working with the neediest of people, she worked out a schedule so that they can have the kind of long-lasting ministry and impact, right? She, she, put, she imposed self-control on her workers who, who wanted to do more and to care for more. So she would have them work for six days caring for the poor, working hard, but they would rest on the seventh. On the seventh day, every seven days, they would not care about the sick and dying. They just do something else. They would work hard for three weeks and then take the fourth week off. Don't care for the sick. They would work hard for 11 months and then take the 12th month off. I thought, wouldn't that be, a great, wouldn't that be great if your job were like that? If you knew that that's how you could work? I bet you would be more productive at your work. And then after working for several years, they would take an entire year off. I mean, that's, that's an imposed self-control so that you can continue to do the work. That's self-control. That's marshalling your energies wisely. Because without that, without that kind of discipline in your life, you will not be able to give yourself fully to anyone or to anything at least not for the, for the long term. Don't let your families get your leftover energies. Don't let God get whatever is left over of your energies. Direct your energies wisely. Let me close with this, my final thought on, on the fruit of the Spirit. As I said, you know, virtues like this that Paulus and we saw here with Peter, every society has them. 
every culture highlights a particular set of virtues. And in general, they're good, they're in large agreement, uh, things like self-control. They're good qualities for you to acquire, for your children to acquire. But notice what Paul and Peter have done in this list, in these lists. They have redefined, they have redefined their cultural values and virtues in light of their faith in Jesus Christ. The Christian psychologist Larry Crabb says this. The real proof of self-control is that I'm willing to control whatever within me interferes with the expression of love. Whatever interferes with the movement toward people on their behalf, genuine self-control would develop only as we understand where life is, in loving God and loving others. So the goal is not self-control for self-improvement to do, you know, to make my life better. Real self-control is that I'm controlling whatever interferes in my life that keeps me from loving others better. Right? We have repurposed self-control for some greater good. There's a book by uh, Janet Reese whose title I really, really like. It's called Flunking Sainthood. A year of breaking the Sabbath, forgetting to pray, and still loving my neighbor. Right? So for a whole year, she tried to, uh, month by month, she would do a different spiritual discipline, and she writes about how she failed at every single one. It's hard. It's hard to have regular times of fasting, to pray all the time. It's hard to maintain the Sabbath. And she failed, and she failed, and she failed. But look at that title. And still loving my neighbor. You see, she started with faith. She made every effort. She exercised self-control. And look where she ends up. She sometimes broke the Sabbath. She forgot to pray. But she loved her neighbors. She got it right. Paul begins with love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And he ends with self-control. He put his cultural foundational virtue at the end, not at the beginning. The fruit of the Spirit is love. I mean, if Paul had just, we don't, unfortunately, we don't have this in Greek, but I wish he had just put a period there or a, you know, a colon. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That would have been enough. By this is my Father glorified if you love one another. I give you a new commandment that you love one another. They will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus said, love God and love your neighbors. That's it. Everything else is commentary. Everything else I say, everything else you read, right? It's all just commentary. Love. We begin with love. And look what Peter has done. He ends with love. He begins with faith in Jesus Christ that leads him through a series of steps that lead to self-control, but it culminates in love. And so it comes full Full circle, full harvest. We begin with love because God is love. And because of that love, we exercise self-control. And we exercise self-control so that we can love. It's not for self-improvement. It's not so that your life can be marginally better. It's for the body. Not your body, 
the body. Love is a foundation and it's also the goal. So even when you are not in the mood, even when you don't feel like making an effort, even when you would do something else that's more enjoyable, you keep your eyes on the long-term goal. And you don't let momentary feelings distract you. Because you are in Christ, because you are loved, you exercise self-control in all things so that you can love God and love others. And you can do this. You can do this because Christ has given you the power and you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that uh, I think we, we have not been as diligent. We have not made every effort. We have not exercised self-control in the areas of our life, especially when it comes to things that matter eternally. And God, we would ask that we would encourage one another to exercise more self-control. Not for ourselves, but so that we might grow in love for you and for the community. Help us to bear much fruit. And so be healthy together to be filled. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, At this time, we will have... uh, baptism.